First and Second Peter, a grounded faith. And this morning we're going to look at foundational truth, uh, understanding what is critical here. Peter has been building to this uh, all the way uh, from the beginning of chapter one. And as we close out chapter one, he's trying to land on something that if you don't have this foundational truth, you're guaranteed to be deceived uh, because he moves on in chapter two uh, to look specifically at false teachers and some of the history of false teachers uh, so we can grasp the fact that lies will constantly be spread. And this is something that, that you have to land on. You have to understand, but you also have to live out. Uh, and so we're going to land, uh, just to give you a, a sneak preview of the application, the question is going to be, how do you approach God's Word? Uh, are you approaching God's Word as the authority, not just that it's accurate, but that it is now a guide in your life and directs your life and changes your mind? So we're going to be looking at that as we close. I was mentioning something, kind of introducing this, and uh, in my house, I often notice that there's a show about cooking or baking on the TV. Uh, which I found nets me more cakes and goodies, so I'm, I'm a fan of people watching uh, cooking shows. And, and being someone who likes food, at times I will stop what I'm doing and I watch the magic take place on TV. Oftentimes, while I'm watching people make things, I become a person who starts requesting the things I'm seeing. Uh, just yesterday, I watched uh, one episode about carrot cake with cream cheese frosting, not icing. I was instructed that icing is thin, frosting is thick. I don't care, as long as it's on the cake. Uh, and I made repeated requests for that cake uh, to materialize in our kitchen, and I'm still waiting. But it did happen yesterday. I'm just dropping the hint publicly, just so you know. I'm a huge fan of carrot cake, uh, not with all the nuts in it, but just carrot cake to blend. Uh, and I love cream cheese frosting or icing. I don't care, whatever. Uh, it's on there. You know what I like now. I just wanted to throw that out there. But Either way, I like watching the baking shows, but there's something that's really um, caught my attention as I'm watching the show, and it's this idea of precision that's required in each recipe. There's an attention to particular details done exactly and done exactly in order. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, I bake things and I don't have that precision, I hate to say it, but you're probably doesn't taste good at the end uh, because there's the need for precision. Uh, I've I've learned that baking is an art, and I always tell Heather I'm not artistic, so I can't bake. And so, uh, but it also requires one to follow precisely what has been dictated to result in that delicious cake or cookies or whatever else you're making. When someone bends those rules or purposely breaks them, the result is then nothing like the expectation Uh, Precision matters in baking, otherwise the product is often not what anyone would want to eat. There are foundational principles to be followed, foundational practices that make or break what is made. I say that because as we live out our faith, there is foundational truth that must be followed with precision, otherwise the Christian life does not end up as it should. This is not something you dive into and get to meddle with. It's not something that you tweak the recipe for. But what we're going to find out is as you look at foundational truth, there is a very precise formula. There's a very precise way to do things. It's not difficult to understand, but it is important that it is followed correctly. 
As we have mentioned, 2 Peter is written as a caution against false teachers, uh, teachers who did not want Christian accountability, teachers who undermined biblical precision. They were casting doubt on the apostles' teaching to promote their own teaching, changing the recipe, so to speak, and pretending that it does not end in disaster. Peter has been building all through chapter 1 on this idea. Teachers uh, that were casting doubt very specifically on the reality of Christ's second coming, doubts on God's judgment. Now, the rejection of this fact was due to their desire to not be held accountable and personally accountable for moral and ethical infidelity. And so it's important to understand, as Peter is laying the foundation, he's pushing back against a core of people who are lying to the church, who are coming in, and they're not just trying to sell a bill of goods and just trying to raise money for something, but instead were people trying to twist truth because they did not want to face the accountability that God calls for in this life. Uh, It was uh, David Helm gave the gist of their accusation. He says the false teachers were basically saying this, the apostles' belief in the final judgment, a day when Jesus will hold each of us accountable for moral and ethical infidelity, is simply the stuff of fairy tales that stems largely from the fertility of Peter's imagination. Therefore, following the strict ethical and moral force of his faith is unnecessary. And I'm going to push a pause button right now and say this, that describes American Christianity and possibly Christianity around the world to a T. People stand up and they say and think, I don't have to follow through on this because really God's not going to judge me. He's not going to hold me accountable. I'm fine. And Peter's built on this, has he not? He's talked about this this erroneous view of God and what you can do. And this is the world we live in. This is the lie that's being tossed out. And it centers around the second coming because Christ coming back forces us to realize that we will be held accountable, right? When parents leave the house, oftentimes kids might get a little crazy and and get into the candy drawer or do things they may not are supposed to do. But they always know there's a reckoning, right? When the parents return, there's a calling to task. And that return of their parents is oftentimes what keeps people realizing that they can't do whatever they want. And so it makes sense if you want to remove accountability, you want to remove the return of the Savior. Peter, though, has been clearly telling the church the exact opposite of what the false teachers denied and belittled. He's called them to a serious connection with their like precious faith. He has spoken of escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust, not engaging in it by being partakers of the divine nature. The opposite of indulging in what they were pushing, Peter has been saying, you as a believer are called to something different. And there's no special different calling for me than for somebody else. We have the same faith and it has the same calling for everyone's life that we are to be out of the corruption of the world, that we are to have a divine nature and that it's supposed to change our life. He's called them to supply to their faith the characteristics of being a believer, things that can only be accomplished if you are a true believer so that we can know with certainty our calling in Christ. Something he'll be proclaiming, he says, until he dies, which he shared with us is eminent It's coming up. It's at any time. Jesus had told him, when you get old, you're going to be taken off to your execution. 
Peter is old and he knows for a fact that he's going to be pulled away someday and have to be killed. And, and, and tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down. He hopes, though, that they will be remembering with precision all of those gospel details after his death. And so you have false teachers saying, Jesus isn't coming back. That's not going to happen. We can do what we want. He's not holding us accountable. There's a different enlightenment. There's a different truth. We have something new. There's no need to listen to these old apostles. Look, they're dying and leaving. John lives quite some time, but as you get to the first century AD and transition, you're going to watch people say they're dead and gone. Those humans are off the scene. Where is this returning Christ? When is he coming in glory? When is he going to hold us accountable? And so they're starting to say that, that time now becomes their weapon of saying it's not going to happen. And Peter is saying it's going to happen. He's coming back. So before Peter dives into addressing false teachers and teaching directly, he wants to establish the reality of Christ's return, and he wants to establish the source of all truth, which will not be any human's interpretation or vision. It will not come from us. Truth never comes from us. And he's going to make that crystal clear in this last part of chapter 1, or as really it is the first third of his letter. All of this so that they and we can be grounded in foundational truth. And that's the title of the message, Foundational Truth. And Peter begins with an eyewitness confirmation. This is verse 16 through 18. He says, because they've been accusing Peter of making up myths, by the way, that he's making up stories, that he's, that he's fabricating this. And if you push the pause button a second, how many times uh, do you hear or, or maybe springs up in your own heart when you hear God's word, you're like, ah, that's just that guy. He's just making stuff up. He's stretching it. They're trying to make a point. And people do that, sadly, so that can oftentimes be an accusation. But when we hear the clear teaching of God's word and our pushback is, well, that doesn't apply to me, well, you recognize that you're accusing God's word of the same thing the false teachers were accusing Peter of, of coming up with stories to make a point. And so Peter says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That tells you what they were fighting about. Christ isn't coming back, they're saying. He's not returning, so don't, don't worry about what's coming down the line. But he says, we weren't telling you lies when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory and the excellent glory speaking of God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. You see, the false teachers consistently undermined the general truth of what Peter taught, but they also had gotten specific about denying Christ's return. And as I mentioned over and over as I started, denying Christ's return was a way to avoid any accountability to deny judgment. So they compared what Peter taught to legendary stories, Greek mythology. Greek mythology has a God coming, has a God dying, has a God returning. That's the age-old story repeated over, and there's always a conflict with the gods, and they're always coming back. They're always rising back up to power. Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you're going to see that. And they said, Peter's just teaching myths. 
Peter flatly and emphatically denies it. You're teaching miss. He says, no, I'm not. You're a liar, not me. That's kind of what he pushes back. There's no compromise in his statement. These are not myths of some God's return, like the stories of Roman and Greek gods, but instead, these are future realities. Jesus is returning in power, glory, and judgment. And to make that clear, Peter turns to the transfiguration on Mount Hermon. And I always think you see the word transfiguration, and the word in Greek is metamorphosis the complete change of Christ and how they saw the picture of his glory, a picture that clearly makes known how Christ returns to earth. And it's not as the suffering servant. A vision that they, Peter, James, and John, saw uniquely. If you remember, all the disciples were there and Christ calls the three with him to come to the mount something they were privileged to witness. That Greek word for eyewitness actually there, there's different words for something that's seen. This word for eyewitness carries the idea of being privileged observer, not an accidental one. It wasn't that we accidentally saw his glory. It's that we were privileged. We were on purpose brought to a place so that we could witness his glory. They witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, the vision of him in his divine greatness how he would appear when he returned. It was a taste of Christ's majesty that is coming with his second coming. It was the fulfillment of a promise to some of the disciples that they would not see death until they saw him coming down. Those disciples that received the promise had it fulfilled at the transfiguration. They got to see Christ as he will come the second time. The false teachers seemed willing to accept the dying Jesus. They're okay with the suffering one. They're okay with how he was on earth, murdered by the Romans. Our world's okay with it as well. Our world can handle Jesus who dies. That's why they tend to say to him, oh, he was a good teacher. He did good things. He died for his cause. Even in the Muslim faith, they recognize Jesus on earth as beneath Muhammad, weaker than Muhammad. They cannot picture him as God, though, and won't, because it's impossible for them to have their God dying as you trace through all of false religion, and it seems everyone is okay with Jesus on earth the first time. They couldn't accept the glorious, powerful, and authoritative king that returns. Our world is happy with Jesus. Think about it for a second in your own heart. You're okay with Jesus who dies for you. You're not okay with Jesus as the king of all kings who reigns forever and to whom you must submit. You can look at the world today, and you can see people who are outright rebellious against God with all the statements they make. Here's a truth of Scripture. They will bow to Christ. And what the false teachers are unwilling to acknowledge and what they're pushing against is the reality that you will submit to Jesus Christ. He's not just a guy that died on the cross. He is the king to whom you will submit. I put here as a question, do we accept it? Do we live with the certainty of a king's powerful 
an authoritative return. And that's the key word we're going to land on from the transfiguration to God's word. The question is always about authority. Who has the authority over your life? And I put here, asking yourself, do I accept, do I believe, do I respond like I know the king is coming back, the powerful and authoritative one? That is a foundational question, actually, to ask yourself. It'll tell you everything about your Christian life, because Christ's majestic appearance on the mountain blew their minds as it was supposed to. They saw God in his glory. The thing that Moses couldn't see, that he had to turn his head and God blocked it because he would have died from it. They got a brief glimpse of it as well. So that when I say it's a Moses experience for them, they saw briefly the rags of Christ's humanity peeled off so they can catch an idea of what he is truly and how he would return. Yet that's not all that took place. Not only did they have a picture of his glory, they heard clearly the affirmation of the Father from the excellent glory, which was a a way of describing God. He was the majestic one. And they said, he said this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. MacArthur notes this, in one concise statement, God declared a relationship of both divine nature and divine love with Christ. The Father's pronouncement also confirmed Christ's right to come again at the ordained time and receive his own and possess the kingdom that is rightfully his. Revelation 5, 9 through 13 says this, and they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Speaking of Christ, for thou hast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And behold, and I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And this is important to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of who will sing this, and it's everyone, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne. Be unto him who reigns supreme. Where is Christ right now? Reigning. Who is worthy? He is worthy. And it goes on, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. How long will we submit to the rule of Christ? forever. (laughs) And this spoke to the reality of his return. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus's second coming, his second coming majesty. He saw him transfigured, changed, shedding the rags of humanity for that brief time, showing his divine glory. Peter heard the father confirm who Jesus is, clearly proclaiming Christ's majestic and authoritative return. It's no fable, it's no fancy story, it's no manipulative game. Christ returns to earth in power and dominion. He reigns and all the world will be subject to him, no matter what they believe today, no matter what reasons they give for denying him, they will answer to him for their heart and life. 
And I put as a question, have we taken that reality to heart? Have we understood that everyone you see, no matter how arrogant, no matter how rich, no matter how powerful, no matter how skilled, no matter how popular, every single one (coughs) will have to stand before the Lord, stand before Christ, and they will submit to him. Have we taken that reality to heart? Yet Peter wants to make crystal clear that there is even more clarity, more blatant authority and accountability. They and we have God's authoritative word, and it is more certain, more sure, it says, than even the glimpse of glory that he and the other apostles saw and heard. He makes abundantly clear that there is a biblical foundation. So from an eyewitness confirmation of actually seeing what Christ will look like, what he will be when he returns, he now moves to a biblical foundation, verses 19 through 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. He's saying we have something better than this eyewitness visual account that we're giving you. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Underline the word interpretation in your Bible. It gives us the wrong sentiment. It's not how we think of interpretation, which we think understanding of the Bible. The word interpretation in Greek is actually speaking of source. In other words, it's of no private sourcing. There's no outside source coming in except for God. And he continues, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We have a more sure word of prophecy. The Jews, as one writer notes, always preferred prophecy to the voice from heaven. They honored the voice from heaven, but remember, we're at the the New Testament era. It's been 400 years without God speaking out. And so we look, uh, if you take a look at the, the Apostle's Sermon in Acts and throughout the New Testament, and you'll see their regard for that written word, for the Old Testament. Peter is basically saying, you don't believe what I saw and testified to, then go to the scripture. Go to the source. And so he speaks to what has been followed for centuries, for thousands of years, that God's word tells a story. And he says, you do well that you take heed. In other words, pay attention to it. He gives his eyewitness account and he says, but there's something better than that. There's something more authoritative than that. There's something that is clearly from God that speaks to that. And he says, go read and study it like your life depends upon it, because it does. Jesus told people as he's teaching, go to the scriptures and you'll see that it speaks of me. And so Peter emphasizes (coughs) that, that practical application by looking first at the function of the word. That as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. He says, you're going to go to Scripture, and I want you to pay attention to it. He's saying, this is more sure than something I've seen with my own eyes. This is more, this puts more confidence, even though what he's seen is truth, and he's made sure they understand it. He's saying there is a a surer way to see this, and then he right away says, and this is what Scripture does. This is the function of it. 
I read recently of a squadron of fighter pilots in World War II returning from a successful mission, but upon their return, they saw no landing lights where their aircraft carrier ought to have been. They call out on the radio asking for lights, but the ship had been commanded to go completely black due to submarine presence and danger. Another pilot called out to the ship for a light. Not possible was the response. Blackout still in effect. Yet another pilot, dangerously low on fuel, called out, can you just give us one little light? No was the response, and then the radio operator was told to discontinue contact. Six fighter pilots crashed that night into the Atlantic because no light was given. Without scripture, and this is the point that he's making, humanity is left flying in the dark with a certain crash coming. There's no little light on. There's no landing strip of lights. They are in the air, and it is dark, and they're not going to land the plane. They might be in their mind close. They might be in their mind in the right vicinity. It doesn't matter. They don't have the light to land. A crash is certain. Scripture is the only light capable of lighting up this darkness and making possible a safe eternal landing. Peter gives his eyewitness confirmation, and then he turns immediately to Scripture, tying into what they've known for thousands of years to what Christ has told people. Search the Scriptures. There you'll read about me. Search the Scriptures. There you'll know the truth. And Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. You want to take my word for it? Look at Scripture. And immediately he says, and this is the function of the word. It is the light. We cannot function without it because we cannot see without it. Why is Scripture so critical? Why do we defend the inerrancy? In other words, the, the, in, the, the fact that there's no mistakes in it. Why do we speak and preach from God's Word? Why is every message supposed to be founded on God's Word, not some trite idea that man may have? Why do we work through books of the Bible this way? So we can see the light. So we can know because there is no other light. It is the exclusive light until the day star arise, until Christ returns in his eternal glory. As MacArthur notes, at his second coming, Christ will replace the perfect temporal revelation of Scripture with the perfect eternal revelation of his person. What is the light for us today? Scripture. As people wander through the tribulation period, what is the light? Scripture. When his second coming comes, what is the light? Christ's presence. Until Christ returns in the second coming here on earth to reign, Scripture is that unique light, the only light, and therefore a must for everyone. Peter makes clear the exclusive function of the word and then moves clearly to the source of the word. This is the bulk of, he's building to this. He's driving, the whole conversation has been driving to this point. It is of no private interpretation, as I mentioned, meaning it does not come from anyone but God. Who can talk about God? God can. Who can tell you how God is? God can. Can someone else? No, they can't. Only God can. That word interpret, like I mentioned, is not talking about how we understand the word, but how instead we get the word, how it originates. It is speaking of source. 
That's why Peter continues in verse 21 saying that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. How does every false religion come? By the will of man. God's word is the exact opposite of all other religions and their spiritual books and visions because all other such religions originate with humanity. Jeremiah notes of the false prophets of his day, Jeremiah 23 Uh, 16 through 25, thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, the Lord has said, ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that, that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, ye shall consider it perfectly. In Jeremiah's day, liars stood up and said, all is well. And God is speaking through Jeremiah and saying, it is absolutely not well. They're liars. They're making up stuff. And God is promising that judgment will come. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I should not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I want you to get an idea of how God views his word and how God looks at other religions. We live in a a day and age, and let's be honest, as citizens of a country, we have respect for what other people believe. I want you to understand this. God has no respect for false religion. God is not there in heaven tolerant of any other path up the mountain. There is no other path up the mountain. His thoughts about other religion is that it's utter despicableness, that it's absolute twists and lies. It's wrong. I have heard what the prophet said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. You want to read the history of one of the religions that's prominent today, Islam, and you realize that it was Muhammad in a cave falling asleep and having dreams supposedly from Gabriel. You know what God says to every one of them? You're a liar. All the religions out there, God says, it's a lie. Why? Their source is humanity. Their source is not God. And we recognize, and I hope you're feeling the weight of God's word, because God's word is not some trite thing you smack around and say, I have God's word in my hand, and then have a platform to launch into whatever you want to talk about. Instead, God's word carries the weight of being from God. It's what he wants. And as such, it is authoritative, which we'll get into in a minute. Peter has a beautiful way of showing us the process of inspiration. Paul speaks of how God moved the writers. Peter uses a a, a description, a a painting, so to speak. He uses boats, wind, and the sea to describe what takes place. And remember, he's a fisherman, so he has some knowledge about it. He says, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Move speaks to being continually carried or borne along And when you look in the Gospel of Luke and through Scripture, that word is used for wind that blows on a ship sailing across water. 
As one writer notes, for Peter, it was as if the writers of Scripture raised their spiritual sails and allowed the Spirit to fill them with his powerful breath of revelation as they penned its divine word. So what you see in Scripture is not some robots. It's not that God grabbed the pen of Paul and started writing, but instead it's as if Paul is the vessel on the ocean going nowhere in that sense, and then the Holy Spirit filled the sails and drove it to shore. Thus, we understand the context of the writer. We understand their life and their background because God didn't just erase all that, but instead work through that to give his word. And as a writer of scripture, these men knew that what they wrote was inspired. They knew the difference between a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit and a letter that was from themselves. Paul wrote more than what was inspired in scripture, but he knew which letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit because he would have known the movement of the Holy Spirit. It would have been divine using their personality. But there's a critical point to be made surrounding the source of God's Word. This is the battleground, and it's the question of authority. If everything else, which it is, is false teaching, as we look at human wisdom, as it is put on paper, as it is twisted and turned into different religions, some that may represent the truth closer than others. But as you look at the the humanity side of it, as you look even at the Catholic Church and you watch how they've elevated the Pope to godlike status, that doesn't come from God's Word. And so they've grabbed human doctrine, so to speak. If, if if, If the Pope speaks, it's as if it is inerrant, is what they would say. Well, that goes in conflict with what Peter is saying because God is the source of His Word exclusively. And you watch to the furthest reaches of people who will worship Satan and reject what God says and come up with their own lines and rules and everything else. From as close to truth to as far away as possible, what you're going to find is they're rejecting the authority of God's word. You're sitting here in church and I'm quote unquote preaching to the choir when I make that statement. But now let me flip the tables and ask a question of us. How much authority does God's word have to direct your life? Because God's word carries the weight of God's authority. And therefore, as a believer, we are mandated to search it and follow it. Your inability to know God's word is your own wicked rebellion. You can read it and know it. And actually, it's not a suggestion he makes. It's Peter driving us to this point because God's word doesn't come from anyone else. God's word doesn't come from me and it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from preachers in the 1800s of Charles Spurgeon's. It doesn't come from the John MacArthur. It doesn't come from you name it. God's word is his word found in scripture. And because it is exclusive, let me carry you all the way back to what its function is. It is the light and there's no other light given that we can land with, that we can live with, except for that light until Christ comes in his second coming, which will be then the revelation of his divine person. But right now, we have scripture. This is what Peter's trying to drive to the church is, if you don't get into God's word and know it, you will end up in the wrong place. Your plane is over the ocean and there's nothing to land by. Eternal 
security, eternal life. All this stuff is driven through the lens of Scripture. It doesn't come from anyone else, only from God, which means that it contains what God wants us to know and to which we will be held accountable. No believer walks into heaven before God and says, yeah, I just wasn't that good with the Bible. I didn't know it that well. It was hard to read the the handwriting of the scribes. They were sloppy. I didn't have a large enough print Bible. Someone didn't smack it on my head enough times. God's not listening to that. And I know sitting here, I can make the assumption that you believe that God's word is truth. That it's the word we use is inerrant. God's word is inerrant. It is, there's no mistaken. And I think sitting here, most people would say, yeah, that makes sense. I think most of us would agree that it's God's word. It's not our word. But see, God's word is not just inerrant. It is exclusive and therefore authoritative. What I mean is, if anything else directs your life, you're in rebellion against God's word. That if anything else is your guide, you're in rebellion against God's word. Let me rephrase that. This is what he's told us. If anything else directs your life, you are an abject, outright rebellion against God. That's where you stand right now. We have to understand where Peter is driving to. He's about to talk about false teachers who have an enlightenment, a new way, and a new system, and the world is different than those old apostles grew up in. They're old. That's like 40, 50 years ago. We have a new way of looking at life. Does it sound familiar to how our world responds to anything that's from the past? And time is not the issue because God says clearly, my word stands the test of time. It is the light until Christ returns. There's not a new light we're going to find. And guess what? Your take on life, I hate to say this, doesn't amount for a hill of beans in what God is saying. Follow what he said. Stop making excuses. God's word is not just inerrant. It is exclusive and therefore authoritative. It is not just theoretical. It's not just for the church and time we sit and worship together. It is practical and speaks to everyday actions and directions. So here's the question. Are we treating it as such? How do you approach God's word? Now, it can be the revered book in your home. You can swear on it. I've heard people say, Kenny, I will swear on this Bible right now that I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, great, whatever. How about you do what the Bible says? That would be a lot better than you swearing on the Bible that you're going to do whatever you just told me. And Christians do that all the time. The world doesn't do it because they don't care about God's word. Open his word, look at it, because his word dictates our actions, period. That's the point Peter's making. And it confronts us, right? Because I'm reading this and I'm realizing, oh, there's plenty of times where I have my take. I'm like, well, you know, 2023. I've just got to interpret this differently. Well, now you need to listen to what he says. No argument stands against that. So ask yourself how you approach his word, or if you even do. And I mean everyday life, by the way. I don't mean just the the spiritual things. That's the whole point. Everyday life, how you respond at work, how you talk to coworkers, how you talk to clients, how you respond to your family, how you respond to your children, your spouse, 
everything is woven in it. Ask yourself how you approach his word or if you even do. And I'm not just talking about opening it and reading a few chapters a day. And that's hard enough for people. I'm talking about it actually changing how you act. Ask yourself if you read it to know what needs to change in your life or hunt for the verses that make you feel good about your life. I'm shocked, i am be honest with you, I'm shocked because I think the majority of Christians flip through Scripture and read what they want, and they think they're reading the Bible because they find something they want to read about, and they read it. That is a sloppy way to approach God's Word. If I'm stepping on your toes, good, I hope they're bleeding. God's Word should be approached with seriousness and integrity If you're flipping through God's Word trying to find out where you should read, you're not approaching God's Word as He instructed you to. If you're not consistently walking to God's Word to find out how you should act and what should change, you're not approaching God's Word as you need to. That's what Peter's trying to make clear to them. God is not okay, and I'd be lying if I said this, God is not okay with a casual, see-what-I-can-get-out-of-it approach to His divine and exclusively authoritative Word. Write down Jeremiah 23, 19 through 25. If you want to know how serious God is about his word, read that verse, and then don't don't try to write it off as just the Old Testament God. Read that verse and see how serious God is, which is one of the ones I read. See how serious God is about his word. How does he view people that take his word and twist it? And then this is what really convicted me is when I didn't just throw that on somebody else because I'm like, oh man, those Muslims, they're in trouble. You know, those people over there, the devil worshipers, they're in trouble. No, Kenny, you're in trouble because how do you approach God's word and what do you do with it? How many times do I open his word and then have no idea what was in it because I'm reading it to read my three, four, whatever chapters I need to read? How easily I forget what is said there How easily I'm looking for just something to pick me up for the day. How easy it is to forget that it is his divine and exclusive and authoritative word. Uh, This is the truth. There's an overwhelming foolishness in ignoring God's word and living out the Christian life in all honesty and attempting to live life at all. And there's an overwhelming foolishness in negating Christ's clear return and in what manner he will return. And it's not the suffering servant of his first coming. Christ is not returning as the man who died on the cross. Christ is returning as the king forevermore. The one who in Revelation reigns. The one who in Revelation is worthy. The one who is seen and it says every, anything that's a creature at all is going to be singing praises to him. That's how he returns. And I put here, are we prepared for his kingly return? And you know the answer to that because the second one says, are you obeying his kingly word? So think about that. That's what Peter's driving home to them. Are we prepared for his return? And then are we obeying his word? Because he's not giving suggestions. He's actually clearly telling us what we're supposed to do. And as Peter drives to this, to understand it, the next chapter all the way through is all these false teachers and lies. And what Peter's trying to make clear to the church is, if you're not in God's word, you will be deceived. You may think, no, I'm too smart for that. You're not in God's word, you'll be deceived. It's, it's, it's literally an automatic thing. It's not something you might skate by. It's not a possibility. It is a reality that you will be deceived. And here's the scary thing for us as we look at it. We won't even know it. 
we won't even know we're deceived and that we followed a lie. And I say that because you might be sitting here and think, yeah, he's a little drastic, that guy. He's got time to read God's word. He's a preacher. Hey, you're deceived right now. And you don't know it. And the only thing that's going to change that deceit is for you to get into God's word and to start reading it and to understand what God is saying and to realize it's not just the truth, it is an authoritative truth that directs your life. Are you prepared for the king's return? And are you obeying the king's word? Let's pray together. If I thank for the opportunity we have to dive in, Peter zeroes his attention in on our hearts. It's the, it's the real battleground that he's been building to. He speaks of what he's seen, which is the truth. He, he's seen God's glory, Christ's glory. He's shed uh, the, the rags of humanity for a moment on the mountain to give three disciples of, a picture of what he is, who he is, and how he will be returning. Yet Peter, in, in using that to, to point to Christ's obvious return, says, but you know from the Bible his return. And we know that the Bible comes from God, that only God could write the Bible. It's not something that Peter could make up. It's not something that Paul could make up or John or any of the people used to write God's word. None of them could have written this because it is God's word. He makes that abundantly clear. The source of God's word is God. And then he makes clear that that word being the source of God, by natural deduction, we know it is then authoritative to our life. God has spoken what he wants us to know, and God expects us to know what he has spoken. And we have a responsibility. And so I ask that as we approach this, that we'll all be convicted to examine our lives, to, to be confronted with the reality that oftentimes we are not going to his word for our directive. Uh, instead, we work from our emotions or maybe our own natural intellect our own natural abilities, and, and we're, we've been gifted by you. There's so many things you've given us, yet they become a stumbling block when they're put in the place of your word. As we walk out this morning, I ask that we all be confronted with our arrogance, how easy it is for us to think we're fine, and in that statement, not realize that we're deceived. I hope that everyone here that has that rise up in their heart and think that what Peter is saying is, is a little too drastic. I hope that the one thing that will sound out in your ears is you are being deceived in this moment. That you must read his word as the authority, that it is directive to your life. It is the truth, but it is God's truth, and therefore it is what drives every decision we're to make. Help us to have soft hearts of change and to be convicted to go to your word not as a little phrase book, but instead as a guide to all of life. In your precious and holy name, amen.